overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios, Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome to another episode of the Badge Boys. I'm retired silent witness sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly. And we're the Badge Boys, two cops talking to the community. We have a great guest. We have the lead detective of the serial shooter case. Then the uh, second segment, we're going to talk about that possible alleged hate crime in Chicago. Then the last segment, we're going to talk about stupid suspect stories, heroic headlines, and Jason's going to end the show with that inspirational thought. So stay tuned, stay informed, and most of all, you'll be entertained. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Welcome back. I am so honored and privileged to uh, introduce our next guest that both me and Jason both know, which we didn't even know we know, each knew this uh, individual. Yes, I got to work with this individual for a while and one of my favorite people. I'm very excited he's here. Uh, you know, it's his fault that I'm even here. He was my first training officer in 1986. And who I'm talking about is the lead detective, retired homicide detective, Cliff Jewell. Cliff, welcome to our show. Good morning, everybody. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, one of the things that you've had a, a, a lustrous career, you've done so many things in your career, and, and your um, end cap to that career was working homicide. I believe that's where you retired from, is it not? Yeah, I did my last 10 years was working homicide. And one of the, you know, there's so many cases that are probably very near and dear to your heart, but one that's very noteworthy, a lot of media attention, was a horrific serial shooter case involving Dale Hausner and Sam Dietman. Would you say that was one of your most difficult cases? Oh, by far. It was one of those situations where, you know, you, you go out on a call and you, you don't know what to expect, and you get there and you get into a briefing, and all of a sudden it, just kind of snowballs into uh, this big case. Uh, originally, I was sent out on a triple shooting with two deceased and one wounded person. And that was uh, December 29th of 2005. Do you mind walking us through that investigation? I know there's so many uh, victims, animals, um, a horrific crime spree these uh, two uh, monsters went on. But do you mind kind of walking us through that? Sure. Uh, you know, I was, uh, I was in bed, and uh, as we typically are, and received a phone call from the boss and was directed to go out to uh, downtown Phoenix. And 
uh, arrived and we were briefed by the patrol officers and we had an individual who had been transported to the hospital. He'd been shot in the upper back, but he was expected to survive. While officers were responding to his shooting call, they came across two deceased victims uh, just blocks apart. And all of them were shot with small caliber, uh, a small caliber gun. And uh, the two individuals that were deceased had no ID, so we didn't know who they were. Uh, close proximity to the homeless shelter. So the assumption was that they were from the homeless shelter. And uh, so trying to identify them was very difficult. Um, both died almost instantly. Uh, during the autopsies, uh, they were both shot uh, in the chest, uh, which pierced the heart. Um, one guy was shot twice, one was shot once. And that was kind of odd because everybody else, the other surviving victim was only shot once as well. So we started to get into this and I went to the hospital to talk to the surviving victim. It turned out he worked for the post office. So now I had to get the postal inspectors involved because he's a federal employee. As it turned out, he worked in the cafeteria and he wasn't really a, a federal employee. But I think the reason he survived is because he, was, uh, he had just gotten off a bus on Van Buren and uh, walked across the street, was wearing a Walkman and had a soda with him and uh, just walked across the street, felt some pain in his back, which dropped him, kind of momentarily paralyzed him. And uh, he was able to get to uh, a halfway house that he was staying at and called for help. Um, it, it's my belief that he uh, did not know that the vehicle with Hausner uh, and his brother were, uh, they were following him. And he was busy listening to music. And when he didn't respond to them, uh, he was shot in the back as he walked away. He didn't see a car, didn't hear anything. The other two victims, it appeared to me that they were lured to the car, maybe. Because it's closer range? Exactly. And the fact that, uh, you know, it's easy for people to pull over and say, here, you want some spare change. And uh, uh, so uh, he survived that, but he wasn't much help. The only evidence that we found was a single twenty-two caliber shell casing in the, the roadway, so. Uh, and did you proceed to think those three were probably related? Because unfortunately in the big city of Phoenix, we have shootings every night. Yes, they, they were definitely related because of the, the MO and the fact that they were. Uh, Victimology. The, well, the furthest was three blocks apart. So they were all very close. Uh, of course, it's midnight, so no one was in any of the downtown buildings. However, there was surveillance cameras on a lot of the buildings. Um, didn't realize it at the time, but I had Hausner's car on video. Wow. And I think wow. it was uh, when, and we don't know the sequence of who was shot first. I believe uh, Marco Carrillo, uh, he was found at 10th Avenue in Jefferson. And I think he was shot first. Uh, they then went north on 10th Avenue, and Jose Carrillo was walking across the street. And I really believe that they coaxed him to the car, because in the surveillance video, you see Hausner's car stop, and then it makes a left-hand turn, and it slows. 
briefly. It's picked up by a second camera, and now it's really speeding down the street. I think he, they made a left-hand turn, said something to him, he turned, he was shot, and he ran. But at the time, we didn't have a vehicle description, so we didn't know uh, that that was Even the case. the car. And then what happened after that? Well, we went to, uh, uh, obviously, media came out. It was not that long after the D.C. sniper case. Right. So it got dubbed the Capitol sniper case because it was close to the state capitol. Um, people were calling in tips. Uh, tips were coming in saying that it was somebody who hates homeless people. Uh, another call came in and said that uh, uh, it was, he was targeting registered sex offenders. Um, and then we got a, a phone call the next day from an individual who said he stayed at the homeless shelter. And he provided a very vivid, detailed description of the suspect vehicle uh, and the shooting of Marco Carrillo. Uh, however, nothing that he told us in the interview was true. Wow. He told us about a brand new Dodge and the individual was a passenger who stepped out, had to, uh, the car had retractable seat belts, had a big Dodge emblem on the front. Wow, he gave so much detail. Yeah, the, the suspect. Just attention gatherer. Exactly. The suspect had gold chains and it was over drugs. And he ran into an alley and hid in a dumpster and heard the shot. The problem with that is that new Dodge vehicles don't have big emblems on them. They, they don't have the ram's head. Those are only on trucks. Tensions in the details. Uh, 95 was the last time they produced a vehicle that had retractable seatbelts. So everything he told us was wrong, but we had to follow up sure. on those. And we received hundreds of calls within a few days. One was that the suspect was an employee for the post office, at the main post office downtown. Uh, guy says every morning he picks me up and we drive to work. Uh, he said that morning when he picked me up in his car, uh, the car smelled like gunpowder. And he was talking about how he hated homeless people and there were guns in the back seat. So we had to go to the post office. All these with, red herrings. Yeah, with the postal inspector and the postal inspector. They were very cooperative with us. We talked to the, uh, the main guy at the post office and he knew the individual. He said, yeah, he's, he there worked There is a, such a person like that. And I said, well, what time did he leave? He said, well, he gets, he sorts mail. So when he's through sorting mail, he gets to leave. Uh, and he parks his truck right there. Well, this tip said it was a car. So that, we followed that guy for two weeks. Wow. And his pattern was the same. He lived in an apartment. He worked that late sh or early morning shift. And he didn't didn't deviate from his usual go to work early, on the way home stop at a Circle K, get a 12-pack of beer, go home. And he did that every day for two weeks. Uh, so we, we kept being sent on these wild goose chases. And in addition, while we're being briefed, other patrol officers are calling saying, hey, we've got a, a small caliber shooting of a dog in central Phoenix. And then a second one came in, and then a third one came in. So we had these three animal shootings 
and uh, these people shootings. So I'm trying to figure out if they're connected, and they're some distance apart, 32nd Street and Indian School area. Uh, but I ended up having to go out and do investigations on those. And as it happened, there were 20-some animals that were shot during this spree. And that spree lasted how long? I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but total span of time? Well, from the earliest shooting that we know about, which was the one that you actually responded to, was uh, in May of 2005. It was. And when I was involved in it, it was December. So we were able to, to backtrack to May. Uh, and it, from start to finish, it was 15 months. 15 months, wow. So now you're at the point where you're looking at possibly um, serial shooting situation with multiple victims who include animals. What happens then? Well, I was fortunate enough to have worked a, uh, another case with an individual from Tolleson PD. And Detective Rock uh, and I worked this case together. He had the original part of it and then I ended up with the suicide part of it and was doing a next of kin notification and the next of kin was standing there watching the news and it was a shooting in Tolleson which Ron Rock was investigating. It was a boyfriend-girlfriend thing. Uh, so I knew Ron and he called me and said, hey, I've got a whole bunch of animals that have been shot in Tolleson and a murder of an individual named David Estrada who was standing at I-10 and uh, 91st Avenue, hitchhiking. He was panhandling for change so he could get enough money to get himself to California. And that kind of strengthened my theory that these my first two victims were coaxed to the car because in the gutter, Ron Rock found change on the ground. And he was standing on the sidewalk, fell directly backwards, and never moved from that spot. So it... With his help, he had collected um, several 22 caliber shell casings. Well, I had one, so I said, bring your shell casing. So he, we met, took them down to our lab, had our, uh, we call them the bullet boys, had the bullet boys do a preliminary check and matched my shell casing to his animal casing. Now you have a serial shooter case. And now we have a multi-agency uh, case. So. I went to my bosses, and it, the, the worst part of the whole thing was, and Jason probably remembers, well, no, I think you might have been gone. I think you're going toward how, how thin our resources were at the Ex time because it overlapped the baseline killer. Exactly. And that was also national. It, actually, probably a bigger story, unfortunately, than the serial shooter case for a while. Well, certainly then because I had a bunch of animals and a couple of people that uh, no one believed that they were all connected uh, even though the casings match yeah uh, how can you not but we'll, we'll, we'll yeah we digress <laughs> so I started I had to research going back as far as I could to find any 22 caliber shootings and at the time we didn't release any information about uh, Course. Type, you know, caliber and that kind of thing. Uh, absolutely. Um, after I started doing my investigation, the shooting stopped. And this was, the last shooting was that night. So I put out a 
some information to all the police agencies in the Valley saying, well, do some research. I need to know any information about shootings involving 22 calibers. The interesting thing, too, is one of the dog shootings the night of the 29th was a shotgun. But it was blocks from the other one. So I thought, well, maybe they have a shotgun as well. Uh, as it turned out, those were done within blocks of Dale Hausner's parents' home. Wow. And uh, he would go visit them, and when he left, he'd go out and play. Opportunistic. Yes. So, uh, but the fact that all the shooting stopped kind of bothered me uh, because, you know, did they get arrested for something else? Uh, America's Most Wanted got involved, inadvertently published the caliber on their TV program, and I was back east at, at their studios listening live while it was put out. Oh, oh. oh. Your, your heart had to drop. I was livid and came back and said, they're going to change guns. Exactly. And, and that's, that's what they did. Exactly what they did. They exclusively used the shotguns after that. Wow. 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 So it, it just became such a, a huge ball of, of clues. And I got nicknamed the pet detective, uh, the dog whisperer, because I kept getting called. Every vet in the valley knew my phone number, and any time they had an animal that was shot, I got a phone call. So I had to go out there and investigate those. I had a duck that got shot in the neck at Central and Baseline. But uh, still, we had to go out and investigate. Sure. The sure. loving, dark humor side of uh, police work, yes. especially yeah. from yeah. your, oh, your, your peers. Colleagues. The, being called a pet detective Lovingly was, was so. done with love. I'm sure it's annoying. Yeah. But look at the case you're working on. I mean, yeah, and when we were talking earlier about the fact that um, the baseline right. killer was active at the same time. Very prolific. I, I worked one of those cases as well. Right. And the sergeant who was lead in that investigation was filling in for my sergeant who was on vacation. So he basically said, run with it and do whatever you need to do. So... Ultimately, in May, I said, uh, May of 2006, I said, I need to call the FBI in and have them profile this. And he said, okay. And I called a friend of mine with the, the local FBI office, and he happened to be in Quantico having Perfect. a meeting. Perfect. Timing is everything. He was having a meeting with all the profilers, and they put me on speaker, and I think that was Wednesday, and they had a team here on Friday. Nice. And how'd that profile turn out? Well, the, <laughs> the fun thing about it is I was on my way to work, and I heard that Scottsdale had a shotgun shooting that was fatal. And uh, I, I said right then, I said, this is my guys. And I always believed it was two people in the car. And uh, just because of the lateness of the, the shootings were always between 10 and 2 in the morning. So very light traffic, very few people out and about. And uh, I went to Scottsdale PD, told them what I had. They came to the meeting with the FBI, and I had taken the FBI to every shooting location, showed them what happened, where the people were, and ultimately in this meeting they said, uh, 
that it was a white male, 18 to 24, no criminal record. He was by himself in a vehicle. And the shotgun shootings and the 22 caliber shootings were not related. Even though I told him about the, uh, the TV program, America's Most Wanted, uh, so basically they got up and left. And then the shotgun series continued and the assault detail actually got those cases because they were not fatal. Uh, most of them weren't. How often are those profiles right anyway? Plus, you know, it's funny. It's, they, it's educated the DC, guessing. The D.C. sniper case you brought up, they were completely, well, everybody in the country was wrong about that. It was a 15-year-old kid actually doing the shooting. Yeah. But right. those profiles are not often going to be spot on and give you real good direction to go. Well, the, you're, you're absolutely right. And the reason the FBI gave me for it not being related is because, and it's almost a quote, but in their experience, serial killers do not change weapons in mid-series. Unless. Unless. <laughs> I would say unless you're tipped off by most America's wanted. Most wanted God bless them. God bless them. They uh, met well, but they slept up. So, so ultimately, how did you wrap this up? Well, bad guys are notoriously talkative and stupid. And ultimately what happened is uh, we, we found out later that Dale Hausner and his brother Jeff were the original 22 caliber people. They were bored, Jeff didn't work, so they would go out to dinner and then find victims. And they, they did what they called random recreational violence. And they would just find somebody walking down the road and they would jump out of the car, beat them up, jump back in their car and leave. In one case, or in two cases, they actually stabbed the victims severely. Um, so we had, Glendale PD had a case, uh, and we had a stabbing, but none of them were put together because the MO wasn't the same. Sure. And uh, the reason this series stopped after I got involved in it is because Jeff Hausner got a job, and he couldn't go out and play at night. So uh, Dale uh, Hausner had to find somebody else to go out with, and it just so happened that Jeff's best buddy, Sam Deepman, happened to be at the house one night, and said, yeah, I'll, I need a place to stay. Uh, Dale lived in Mesa. So that's why we had shootings all across the valley. It's because Jeff lived at 91st Avenue in Camelback, a mile from Tolleson, and he had to travel back and forth. And all of the shootings were done in close proximity to a Interstate 10. So we had quick access home. And, uh, and what was the final... Um I don't want to say tip because I want to lead you in a direction, but what was the final thing that kind of uh, allowed you to piece it together? Was there somebody that came forward? There, there was. We, we had a couple of situations that all kind of tie together, but uh, Sam Deepman got arrested at a Walmart for shoplifting. They were mad at Walmart for arresting him, so they decided to set fire to two Walmart stores. Well, unfortunately, Walmart has lots of cameras. And they were on video, uh, starting the fire, and driving away. And that was handled by arson investigators, not connected to the serial shooter case, but we had video. Uh, somebody called in and said, I think uh, this 
might be a guy that I know named Sam, and then a second individual called and said the same thing, that he had been talking to his friend at a bar, and his friend asked him, Sam, asked him uh, if he knew what it was like to kill somebody. And when the guy said, no, what are you, crazy? Uh, he said, well, I do. So he contacted us and then worked with detectives to uh, basically set up a, a, a surveillance force. And that's how they're ultimately, ultimately arrested. How were those arrests done? Well, we uh, actually had, uh, we had his apartment, so we knew where he lived. And uh, we had his car and his plate number. They followed him one night from the bar, put a bug on his car, a GPS bug on his car. He actually dropped Sam off at the bar and then went to Metro Center. While he was inside Metro Center, they put the GPS on the car. Nice. And then they followed him, and he got off. He got onto I-17, got off at Jefferson, took Jefferson down, made a loop around the main police station as a taunt, I guess, and then drove down Van Buren looking for uh, people to shoot that were out about. We had several girls that were out working, uh, one of which was an active duty Marine from Yuma who came up here on the weekends. And uh, so I ended up getting contacted by NCIS, nothing like the guys on TV. But we worked her, and she was the only one they gave us a description that matched pretty much Hausner's car. Gotcha. Now, there's a book um, by Camille Kimball called uh, Sudden Shot. Uh, also, my book, which is that you can look at it at um, silentwitness.org, uh, which is called Twisted But True Tales, that, where I go into the shooting of Reginald Mullinard, uh, which was also one of the victims. Um, which was horrific. So if you're interested in either of those two books, um, you'll learn more about the serial shooter case. Well, that wraps it up for this uh, segment. Our guest, uh, Detective, uh, Homicide Detective, Cliff Jewell. Uh, Cliff, thank you so much for joining my us, my pleasure. friend. Thank you, Cliff. I appreciate it. And we'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. I'll never forget, never forget that moment. As long as I as live. As long as I live. My first call ever as a member of the National Guard. When we got to the armory, they briefed us on the wildfires. They were getting dangerously close to homes. Helicopters were going out to drop water on the fires. Guys in the unit were preparing for fire firefighting with local fire crews. At that moment, I got my first taste of just how important the Guard is to my community. See how the Guard can be an important part of your life at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back to Badge Boys. Now we're going to talk about one of the hot topics of the week, you cannot turn on any news station or open up any news app on your phone and not see the case about Jesse Smollett in Chicago. And looks like the tide is turning a little bit from his original police report 
and now they're trying to determine if he actually was attacked or if it's going to end up being a hoax, a false report. And uh, Darren has uh, something to read on that. Yeah, this is from CNN. Uh, it said, and this was dated on February 18th. Two law enforcement sources with knowledge of the investigation tell CNN that Chicago police believe actor Jesse Smollett paid two men to orchestrate an assault on him that he reported late last month. Smollett denies playing a role in his attack, according to a statement from his attorneys. The men, who are brothers, were arrested Wednesday, but released without charges Friday after Chicago police cited discovery of new evidence. What that tells me is that these two are cooperating. The sources, it continues, the sources told CNN the two men are now cooperating, oh, there you go, fully with law enforcement. Smollett told authorities he was attacked early January 29th by two men who were, quote, yelling out racial and homophobic slurs, end quote. He said one attacker put a rope around his neck and poured an unknown chemical substance on him. The sources told CNN there are records that show the two brothers purchased the rope found around Smollett's neck at a hardware store in Chicago. Smollett's attorney, and I won't mention their names, issued a statement to CNN on Saturday night saying Smollett was angry about these latest developments. Quote, as a victim of a hate crime who has cooperated with police investigation, Jesse Smollett is angered and devastated by recent reports that the perpetrators are individuals he is familiar with, end quote. What's interesting about this is so many people were a rush to judgment through the court of public opinion. Yes. And, and I think re- regardless where this investigation goes, because it should go to a s- successful conclusion, yes. whether it be a hoax or whether it be a hate crime, both we need to know and we need to be feel confident. The problem is that when these allegations first occur and they are just allegations at first, everyone is real quick to weigh in on them right. and take it to and, and, and start pointing fingers and start talking. And we really, as a public, this might be a good um, litmus test to understand that when these things occur, it's easy to have an already biased opinion. But we need to put that aside and just let the investigation continue because, again, the investigation is continuing and an allegation is just that. Whether you're on the suspect side of that allegation, how many times do we hear the alleged suspect? Well, we also need to keep aware that when a victim reports a crime, it's being alleged that this crime has Well, especially when there are no witnesses, it's not caught on surveillance, you as a law enforcement officer, you truly have just one person telling one side of the story. And if it can't be corroborated right away, then you, this is exactly why you have investigations. As, as I'm listening to it this week, uh, you know, for me, put aside uh, what most people want to focus on, which is the, the hate side of it. And the racial side. The of racial it. side of it. Possible On both sides. With, uh, yeah, on both sides. But it, it made me go back to, and it's interesting, today of all days, we just got through speaking to Cliff Jewell, and he brought up about working with a Tolleson detective on a, a case. And I remember when I was a rookie police officer on patrol, we had a Phoenix police officer who got on the radio and called out that he was being ambushed, 
using the the codes he sounded very out of breath very scared he had been shot in the hand and i remember as a rookie officer sitting in briefing listening to this tape because they were trying to educate us train us to understand what's going on plus all of our resources at the time were directed toward finding who ambushed one of our officers guess what not one ounce of this story was true and this is a police officer who's on the radio giving live details as it happened and he did have an injury he had a gunshot wound to the hand it didn't take very long to figure out that that was a hoax he was fired i do believe he faced some charges but i remember all the resources that were taken away from other areas where they would have been useful and they were dedicated to something that was completely false. false. And, you know, in somewhere like Chicago, there are a lot of other crimes happening. There are a lot of other victims. And if this case turns out to be false, that's one of the greatest injustices is to the community itself because all those detectives are not able to focus on something real. They're investigating something that's possibly not. That's the perfect segue to maybe kind of change course on this conversation and talk about false reporting. Not as it relates to Chicago, because we don't know, and neither Jason or I, uh, we both agree. We always try to stay positive, and we don't try to lower ourselves. Um, So on this discussion, as it relates to Chicago, we're just going to let the investigation continue and find out what what the experts who are involved will say. But having worked sex crimes for about seven years, close about 8,000 sex crimes um, because there are so many in the Valley um, that we had to deal with uh, during that time frame. And maybe about 5 to 7%, and that's the actual FBI uh, number they kick out, are false reports. And I found in my time there's basically four reasons for false reports as it relates to sex crimes. And you may be able to kind of think of this in terms of even this case. But the first one is... Um, to deflect. A lot of times a a individual will report a crime to deflect something else. Uh, For example, in sex crimes, it would be an STD or pregnancy based on an affair because they're married or have some significant partner. They will deflect whatever occurred to them with this criminal report. It kind of gives them an alibi, if you will, for some other reason. Uh, The second reason that people will make up a false report is revenge. In those situations, they actually will point the finger at someone. And those are the ones that I love to prosecute or or bring to prosecution, um, where they actually accuse a person. And keep in mind, the crime that they're alleging is, like with a sex crime or a hate crime, are felonies. This is a serious crime. In Arizona, to make a false report against somebody and point your finger at them is only a misdemeanor. So what you're doing is you're accusing someone of a felony, potentially putting them in prison for 20 years. Yeah, taking their freedom away, ruining their entire life. And you doing that is a is punishable by less than a year in, in jail. Um, that's the revenge aspect. The third um, reason I see false reports is custody issues. Yeah. Now, this would not really play into um, this hate crime you know, scenario or many other crimes, but in domestic situations where there's children involved many times there is a allegation against one of both parties regarding children or regarding themselves that's also unfortunately uh, many times where we see a false report and the last one which may have relevance to the chicago scenario and i I do emphasize may is the attention 
many it's kind of like that Munch, munchausen um, oh, yes. if you remember sixth sense munchausen by proxy yes. you, you want the attention based on someone else's being you know sick um munchausen is absolutely a real deal out there there are some people that just love the attention and the sympathy and i, I had one case i won't go into detail but i had one case where she was new to the valley uh from the from the reservation and she just hated here so she she made up in a complier uh, fabricated story for the attention to say Phoenix was an unsafe place and need to get back to the res. So how about you? What, well, what have you found? Cliff brought up earlier the witness in the serial shooter case. One of the first witnesses gave such incredible detail. And all that served to do, he got a little bit of attention in a high-profile case, but it completely changed the direction of the investigation and could have potentially cost other people their lives or their safety. I remember the very first homicide that I ever went on. Of course, you go on something like that, you're never going to forget it. The very first one, and it was a originally called as a home invasion, one victim, and his wife was found in the living room of the home bound. When we got there, right away, patrol officer said, you know, she wasn't tied up very tight. She could have freed herself. It was almost like she did it herself. Just there on scene judgments and you know we had talked to her and she gave this elaborate story about people breaking in she doesn't know what happened she hasn't seen her husband she was tied up for four hours and when we got to the bedroom her husband unfortunately was deceased murdered no evidence of a break-in she wasn't tied up uh, in a way that would have made her stay there for four hours, and she was otherwise unharmed. She had no physical injuries. And we could not, we had some family members say, hey, she's having an affair, and we think that he's involved along with her. And we worked this case pretty hard for about nine months and got a call one day that her and the person she was having an affair with were now dead in a murder-suicide. Yeah. And, but that originally... We start off, we're looking for, she's describing people. She is accusing people of entering her home. So multiple felonies, burglary, robbery, kidnapping, murder. And it was all false so that she could cover up something else that she was doing. You know, as investigators, uh, how we come to a investigative conclusion is we, we basically have different detectives do different roles. We have a detective that's talking with the witnesses, the victims. Then you have a different detective going to the crime scene, looking at that. Uh, there's various other detectives, but I won't go into that. But just comparing the statements, again, I, I said it with Cliff, the, the details, you know, the devil's in the details. When, when you're fabricating a story, um, you can kind of, you're fabricating it. You're making it up. Whereas if it's the truth, it's, it, it is what it is. And when I say it is what it is, that's what the crime scene gives you. The crime scene is simply evidence, and evidence doesn't lie. So when you look at the crime scene and it tells you this, 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 then you call the case agent who's talking to a victim or a witness, and you start comparing what you have the scene and what they're getting from the victim, alleged victim. Again, it's always good to keep that word for both parties. Right. And... You start seeing the C's. It's either a contradiction or it's consistent. 
And that's the key to us figuring out these cases. And then the other stuff that comes in is the, what I would call the uh, secondary, is the icing on top. It's, you know, um, you mentioned it, uh, Jason, when you talked about um, getting um, phone records from maybe Department of Corrections or video from a intersection through Department of Transportation, the computer with people searching things. When bad guys do, excuse me, bad guys who want to become victims make false reports, they go online and they're searching. Well, they so, educate themselves. Yeah, they yeah, educate exactly. themselves on what to say and how to And the paper trail, it. you know, when they're buying things for different things. So all these things will end up playing out in Chicago, hopefully, and they'll be able to come to a true investigative conclusion. And like you said, if this is false, then absolutely should be charged for um, a lot of things in terms of the hindering of uh, entire police department because they have to put a lot of people on this case, didn't they? Yes, I'm sure there are, because it's a high-profile case, so the higher-ups, the leaders in both the law enforcement and the city are going to be demanding that oh, resources work this. So I have no doubt, you know, people are not, some people are going to like the outcome, some people are not, It's no matter what the outcome is, but I have no doubt that's the Chicago Police Department is going to get to the true and accurate answers of this case, and they'll either either solve it if it was a hate crime, racially motivated, or they will be able to prove that uh, it was completely false. So, I uh, God bless them for what they're going through right now because they are under a microscope. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Chicago PD by by name. Um, with my book, I've been very fortunate to um, a lot of people in Chicago have purchased it and have been talking to me. So I have a lot of these now friends, I call them, um, from Chicago. And these are really, really dedicated uh, patrol officers and detectives that get a lot of, you know, police officers out there in Valley in, in, throughout the world are getting a lot of negative press when one officer makes a mistake and you just mentioned one the guy who shot himself in the hand and oh. fabricates the whole thing you know not everyone's meant to be a police officer and so we do have a bad apple but it's like a drop in the ocean is how i look at it when you talk about almost a million police officers in this country almost a million and of all that million how many times do you see a bad video of a, of a cop doing something bad it's usually what you see is something that is arguable you know you're not sure what you're seeing right. very seldom do you have that horrible horrible and it does happen sure but it's a drop in the ocean when you think about a million police officers out there and when i was officer you tell me what you think i, I would have 20 calls a night so well, i was going to say a, a million officers but just many, here just here in the valley alone i know when i was a patrol officer Back in 1999-2000, we are talking 2 million calls of service in our one little corner of the world here in Phoenix. Now, think of a place like Chicago or New York City, Miami, Houston, things like that. It doesn't happen very often, and yes, we get painted with a broad brush. And you know, I was very proud of the Phoenix Police Department, the way they took care of that false case that I was talking about, because a lot of people think, you know, they have bad opinions of police officers or agencies, think things get covered up. I remember coming to work one night, and this guy's picture being all over the front of the precinct saying, do not let this person in. He is trespassing, uh, possibly armed and dangerous. This is one of our own. Was. And within a week, yes, ex-police officer. There is a big difference, ladies and gentlemen, between an ex-police officer and, and a former. Or re- I am a former or retired police officer. Thank you. That is gentleman is an ex 
police officer, and you're right, it is going to happen, and it's a shame, but... Um, yeah, there's no... Everyone hates a bad cop, but nobody hates a bad cop more than a cop. Yes, especially when you're out doing the job for the right reasons. Oh, you have the honor and humility behind the badge. That's going to grind your gears more than anything, and that's why I brought that up, right, when we at the top of the segment. It, it took me right back, because I was so... <laughs> angry at this guy for risking my profession, risking my reputation, and wasting the resources, stealing, basically stealing from the safety of our community. Yeah. You absolutely have no right to do that. I don't care who you are, if you're wearing a uniform or not. And that, that's the case that, to me, is just as, as bad as the one we're talking about right now because... At the end of the day, we're talking about people are doing their jobs, trying to get to the bottom of this, and they have to listen to all these false claims or uh, people yeah. who are angry and opinionated. And the one thing that we do know, and we may be able to kind of clean up the segment with it, is that at this juncture, there's two individuals who are not white males. They are Nigerian. In fact, what's interesting, the police didn't even know what nationality they were when they were um following up on these two individuals and it was brilliant police work how they did brilliant. with the uh, taxi cab following th that lead <laughs> falling into the airport getting their information and then finding a return flight for these individuals and they left literally immediately after the crime right and then they do the search warrant on their home or i better said apartment and uh they find items linking to the supposed attack or i will say alleged attack regarding the rope and then you know the receipt the paper trail so all this linking evidence isn't looking good for this allegation and to your point jason the amount of resources man well, i hate using the word manpower but you know employee power right these men and women of the chicago police department good old-fashioned police work just like the tv shows when i was a kid you put the clues together the puzzle Puzzle pieces go together. There's nothing like it as an investigator. You're the right. smallest of details, as they start fitting together, it is, it is awesome it's to be a part of that world, to be a part of the solution to whatever's going on. And, yeah, the way Chicago handled that part of it and got to where they're at today is I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I uh, foresee, and this is, I'll put out a prediction, I foresee not weeks, but Days, maybe like one or two, where we're going to um, hear something from the Chicago Police Department. Because they're at that juncture when you have cooperating um, witnesses that may have been suspects that are now right. cooperating with investigation. And that was what I heard when I heard the phrase, they were arrested, but now they're released because of new evidence, meaning <laughs> they're turning up. They were released pretty quick. They after, were, yeah. I, they I are, think they, they got in there and they started talking and it was... Obviously, whatever they said, was they got released. One of the lines I used to always tell people when they're, I think they're involved with some type of fabrication, I said, in my world, there's three people. There are suspects, victims, and witnesses. Which one do you want to yeah. be? <laughs> well, that's a good point to uh, end this awesome. segment. Uh, join us because our last segment, we're going to have heroic headlines. We're going to have stupid suspect stories. And most importantly, we got to close with Jason with an inspirational thought. So be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this.
I remember the moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Well, we are back with our last segment. Uh, we have some really good stuff. We've got the heroic headlines, stupid suspect stories, and again, the moment that I love is the inspirational message from Jason. But let's start off with uh, heroic headlines. you got a good one, don't you? I have a great one this week, and it, this is not always going to be about an officer solving a homicide. It's not always going to be about... Uh, a SWAT member could be a taking civilian. a bullet, saving life. It could be a civilian, but predominantly it's going to be the human side. And there was a great story this week that I am just going to read the the news story because I think it covers all sides. The gentleman who described this, and it involves a, just a generous effort from an officer, but the guy who described what happened told it th- the way he felt about understanding that police officers and opinions right now maybe uh, we're on a down cycle but this is just a great story a police officer in new jersey left a touching note for a waitress along with a 100 dollar tip after learning that she was pregnant and her first child according to the server's father brian cardigan of sewell new jersey shared the sweet story on facebook over the weekend posting a picture of the officer's receipt and praising him for the generous act. This is a $9 meal ticket, and the officer left a $100 tip on top of that. Quote, Cardigan said, you always hear about how bad the police are, how they treated you like dirt, how they're on a power trip. And yes, I am sure there are some bad apples, but most of them are just doing their jobs. They deal with the worst of society every day and have to keep going back every day and deal with it all over again. Cadigan then went on to praise the police in general for things that they do that most people will never know about. Before sharing the story of his daughter's run-in with the officer who walked into the Lamp Post Diner in Gloucester Township on Friday. My daughter is a waitress at a local diner. She is seven months pregnant and working to save as much money as she can, Cadigan wrote, explaining that the young woman attended to the lone, pleasant officer who came in for lunch. When he was done, Cadigan said the officer signed the check and left her a $100 tip on the $9 ticket and simply said, enjoy your first. You will never forget it. This is probably a young officer who remembers what it's like to have that first child. Remember what it's like to not have a a lot of money. We all know what it's like to have our first child. We're usually pretty broke when we're doing it. So um, it was a human. It had nothing to do with a call. It had nothing to do with what he was trained to do in the academy. It's just he saw something. He was moved. And he helped this person out. So her dad said, thank you. I have the utmost respect for officers. And you went above and beyond, not just as an officer, but as a beautiful 
human being. And the officer wishes to stay anonymous, unfortunately, because I'd love to say his name. But oh, I love that to, anonymity to it. Uh, yeah, it, it is a beautiful thing. But uh, all the officers in New Jersey, I was just there in Atlantic City a few weeks ago. Uh, my dad is from Asbury Park, New Jersey. I love the state, love the people. And this officer is a shining example of not only the people in the state, but for all of us in law enforcement. Thank you. I love that story. It makes the stupid suspect story just that much funnier, really. <laughs> you know, you go from this heroic act in terms of a humanity by a cop to um, Gulfport, Mississippi. A man has been arrested after he drove his pickup truck into a courthouse in Mississippi. Now, that's stupid, granted. But why did he do it? Takes it to stupidity to a whole nother level. News outlets reported that the Gulfport Police Department said in a news release that 28-year-old Keith Cavalier, I love that, Cavalier, uh, because he had quite a Cavalier attitude towards the courthouse, told officers he intentionally crashed into the Harrison County Courthouse early Saturday because, and here it is, people, because it was the best way to let them know his drug paraphernalia had been stolen. That's right. He drove his truck into a courthouse so he could get their attention to report his bong was stolen. Luckily, no one was hurt. Uh, Cavalier, again, I like that name, has been charged with driving under the influence. Wow, I'm shocked. There was alcohol involved. Uh, Was driving under the influence and malicious mischief because of damage to the building. Now, in our state, uh, I think that'd been more than malicious. I think that would have been endangerment, attempt homicide, uh, lots of other things. So, stupid suspect story goes to Keith Cavalier for running into the courthouse report his bong was stolen. Uh, the only other suspect story I have for you is one that uh, occurred. Uh, it's in my book. Uh, I'll just uh, give you the highlights. Um, when somebody commits a horrible, horrible, horrible crime, you, you hate to look at the funny side of it. Uh, this was a sexual assault, a rape. It was uh, at a, a bar, a pickup joint, where these sexual predators will absolutely use the benefit of a bar where it's dimly lit, there's alcohol involved, and the victims many times can't identify their perpetrator. And they do it on the pretense that this is a hookup, when in actuality, these sexual predators will select bars to operate in and to victimize people. So this stupid suspect, um, unfortunately, was successful to the extent of picking up a young girl, taking her to her home, uh, and then immediately began to sexually assault her, a violent rape. Unfortunately, because what I just mentioned is dimly lit, so she couldn't really identify him, uh, there was alcohol involved, so she was impaired there was no video surveillance we had nothing except the suspect left his wallet at the crime scene so thank you stupid suspect for being so stupid and uh, i think this is a perfect segue for inspiration because that was kind of sad it's it's a rape it's nothing funny about that we just got lucky we had a stupid suspect yeah and i'm actually because i move on from things so quickly and i try to stay so positive i'm actually refreshing my own memory from just a couple weeks ago uh, on my Instagram, which is at Shekterly underscore Jace. And I'm always telling people life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how I you react that. to it. It's a great cliche, which it I hate. so true. I hate the term cliche. I'd love to invent a saying that 100 years from now, people are still being moved by. Don't well, say by something. By the time we're done, we will. Do buddy. not say something is a cliche because cliches are awesome. That's why we say them all the time. Anyway, I am 
boarding a flight here in Phoenix uh, recently. Southwest Airlines flying to Philadelphia. It's a long flight. And I absolutely love Southwest Airlines. Fly them all the time. I'm on A-list because I travel so much. So I sit down, my favorite row three or four window seat, and I'm on early. And as the plane is filling up, over the loudspeaker, they keep saying, every seat is taken. This flight is full. Don't pass up a seat. Get your overhead bin space. All that stuff. And the gentleman on the aisle offered our middle seat to three different people. And very quickly, they would glance up at me and right away just kind of shake their head and be like, no, I'm going to find something at the back of the plane. And this happens a lot on flights, and it's you know easy for me to be reminded, oh, yeah, I forgot I have those bad scars. Or people might, they don't see, aren't able to see past those and things like that. Well, the plane fills up. We taxi out to the runway, and my seat is still, the seat next to me is still empty. So I had two choices. Number one, I could let the insecurity creep in. I could let the, the, the weight of the moment, like, oh, seriously? It be easy to do. Right. Or I could remember why I was on that plane, what I was going to do when I got to Philadelphia and Atlantic City. Remember that I wouldn't trade places with anybody in this world. It is our choice. Consider for a second the power in that. You have the choice how you're going to react to everything. And I could have easily let that bum me out. But now also I have four hours of more leg room on my Southwest flight. Be the most positive person you know every single day. Be so positive that negative people don't even want to be around you. Thank you all so much. We will talk to you next week. I love being sitting next to you, buddy. You're the man. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys. Heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Batch Boys.